Hi guys, welcome back for a new episode of Getting Your Shit Together. After being away for a while, it's time for us to take that next step in developing and controlling our mind. In this episode, we're going to take an even closer look into the neuroscience of the brain and learn how to practically apply that knowledge to improve our mental health and mindset. I'll then try to tie everything we've been talking about so far together so we can move on to a slightly different topic for our next episodes. While in my last episode, I used an analogy comparing the human brain to a computer running different programs. Today I'll start out talking about why this comparison is rather flawed. Because our brain is fucking amazing, but it's not a computer. This whole idea of the brain being a computer is a theory which gained popularity in the 50s due to the rise of digital computing during this time, and we call it the computational theory of mind. In essence, the computational theory of mind implicitly dictates that the mind is software which runs on the brain, which is the hardware. It views the mind as a property of the physical brain that could be extracted. And from that reasoning, the idea of being able to upload people's minds into digital computers in the future was born. The years have, however, not been so kind to this theory. For one, how our brain functions in reality differs a lot from how computers work. The main distinction comes from the fact that our brain, with its billions of neurons, are living cells that grow and change constantly. It does not store or process information in a fixed place like a computer. It does not have an on and off switch. The different components are not stationary. It is a complex, living entity that is constantly rewiring itself and activating different connected regions and millions of neurons in order to recall a memory, solve a problem, or move our body. Furthermore, a computer does not possess the ability to fix itself. The brain's amazing neural plasticity makes it capable of completely rewiring and restructuring itself, for example, if one part becomes damaged or is not functioning properly. Finally, while research has proven that our brains very much rely on biochemical mechanisms that have been optimized over millions of years, just like machine learning algorithms, which we'll talk a little bit later about, to control things like our senses, drives, and urges. We have little to no common understanding of how concepts such as consciousness, self-awareness, and other functions related to higher intelligence are built. If indeed the mind is the software of the brain that can run on any hardware, it is something that we have yet to figure out. I realize while saying this that I need to make a disclaimer that further supports the claim of the brain being far more complex than we can so far comprehend. When I've used the terms brain and mind in previous episodes, I've been basically been referring to the same thing, because we do not really know if the two are separable. One of the most famous philosophical debates in history is called the mind-body problem, which tries to understand where our mind resides in a physical sense. There really is no solid proof for any theory yet, so until further notice, I'll just be using the brain and the mind interchangeably, referring to the same thing going forward. For the most part, the only thing we do know is that different parts of the brain have some primary functions. We have the old brain, which mostly consists of the brainstem and the cerebellum that takes care of our vital functions. Then we have the limbic system that is responsible for things such as emotions, learning, and memory. And finally, we have the outer part of the brain, the cerebrum, that helps us think, perceive, and speak. However, 
All these parts of the brain are heavily intertwined with each other to complete the many complex processes that we do every day. One of the best and most established theories on how the mind functions as a whole comes from the Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman. His System 1, System 2 approach to the brain's mental thought processes is one of the fundamental learnings of practically understanding how our mind behaves. Have you ever been lost in thought while driving, arriving at your destination and realizing, wait a minute, I wasn't present this whole time. Who was driving the car? How come everything went okay? Well, that was your brain system one, doing what it does. Every day we make thousands of decisions we are not even aware of. Movements, reflexes, and habits that basically go on autopilot. System one is the fast, automatic, unconscious, and emotional process that drives the intuitive gut decisions we do without thinking. System two, on the other hand, is a slow, reflective, conscious, and rational thought process that enables deliberate decisions and behavior. It is also this deliberate thought process that we think we are operating in for most of the time, but that is very much likely not the case. It is for one, not very energy efficient to use our system too constantly as it puts a much bigger cognitive load on the brain. As an example, you're probably not aware of the stream of sensations your body experiences continuously and the vast amount of movements and decisions your body's making this very instant. The fact that you're breathing, that noise in the background that you've blocked out, how it's a little bit uncomfortable in that position you're in right now, it quickly becomes a lot of sensations to process consciously, and that's why the brain has created a system to deal with this. I mean, just imagine if you had to consciously remember to breathe. You would have been dead in seconds while watching your favorite TV show. The best explanation to why we develop these two modes comes from an evolutionary lens. The very fact that life for humans and other animals alike for millions of years was very dangerous and therefore we needed a system that could react fast to the environment to even be able to compete for the struggle of survival. This created the basis of the patterns in our system one mode of thought which can be labeled as latent instinctual programs which automatically turns on when needed. Examples of these are hunger and thirst, the fight-flight-freeze response, and the urge for sex. These are biochemical mechanisms that have been optimized just like machine learning algorithms and our brain relies on them so that we can survive and reproduce. We for example have evolved an innate fear of snakes and spiders because of their venomous bites. Habits that we developed during our lifetime also become part of these automatic responses in System 1. Finally, we also quickly process information through mental shortcuts that we call heuristics. An example of this is the availability heuristic, where we rely on the information that immediately comes to mind when making a decision, like recent memories. Using heuristics for problem solving that is not routine or habit has helped humanity survive for hundreds of thousands of years. To quote Kahneman, System 1 constantly creates suggestions for System 2. Impressions, intuitions, intentions, and feelings. If accepted by System 2, impressions and intuitions turn into beliefs, and impulses turn into deliberate actions. When everything is running smoothly, which is most of the time, System 2 embraces System 1's suggestions with little to no modification.
you generally believe your impressions and act on your desires, and that is fine, usually. However, this decision-making is not based on rational thought and is therefore prone to systematic errors. So while there have been many benefits from having these two separate mental thought processes, these systems are also prone to flaws and fallacies not adapted to our modern world today, and we need to be aware of this fact. We, for example, have a lot of irrational fear that stems from these old System 1 survival instincts. The mismatch between our old brain and our new environment has a significant impact on the amount of chronic stress and anxiety that we experience today. There is no rational reason to be afraid of the dark, but it's something that most of us have to deal with while growing up. Another popular example is the fear of flying, which is statistically about 100 times safer than driving. But the big one that is crippling a vast majority of society today is the irrational fear of particular social situations. Humans are social animals, and we have a natural strong desire to be part of a group and to be accepted by it. Social anxiety is a result of the fear from possibly not being accepted by our peers. Social exclusion would naturally be pretty devastating and lonely back in a day when the tribe was all you had and could inevitably also mean that you could lose your chance to reproduce. The repercussions today, however, are far from that fatal, and thus most times irrational in our modern society. Our system too is also subjected to bias. Here we get the flaws in our thinking we call cognitive biases that arise from our heuristics. These mostly relate to our often misguided subjective perceptions of ourselves and the world. Our selective attention bias means we pay attention to some things while ignoring other things that may be just as important, and how you frame a particular statement completely alters how we perceive it in our own mind. These are well-known biases that fields such as sales and marketing have been taken advantage of for hundreds of years. Emotionally triggering content and framing techniques like anchoring and the decoy effect are often used tactics that you can easily fall prey to on an everyday basis. I would strongly recommend you check out Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, or read about the many popular cognitive biases that we are affected by in our daily lives in order to mitigate the effects that they have on you. I will put a link to some articles in the description below, but there are just too many biases to list them up right now. The reality is that we're fantastically little deliberate control of our mind. You may think that your conscious mind has the last say in your decision making. Well, for many cases, not even that is true. In the famous experiment by the neuroscientist Benjamin Lubet, the subjects were asked to make a decision to move their hand and record the moment they made that conscious decision while hooked to a brain scanner. The results from the experiment showed that the brain would actually signal the movement of the hand about half a second before the subjects reported that they were even aware of having made a decision to move their muscles. The experiment shook the scientific community in the 1970s, and many people started to even question if we have free will at this point, a topic we will dive deep into in another episode. Another discovery we've made by using brain scanners like fMRI are the many neural connections of the brain that form like networks. Our mind is never not active, and the parts of our brain that are activated when we're resting 
or basically doing nothing, have been defined as default mode network. In short, the research showed that at rest, we're actually thinking quite a lot, but the thoughts are self-referential, which means we are essentially talking to ourselves. You know that inner voice in your head? Yeah, that one. And just like our mindless driver from our anecdote earlier, in this state of daydreaming, this is where System 1 is active and running the show, which indicates that System 1 and the default mode network are more or less the same thing. The scary part is how much time we actually spend in this mind-wandering state. A Harvard study found that we on average spend 46% of all our time while awake, lost in thought to some degree, and not fully engaged in what we're doing at the moment. Now, what does all this mean? Well, combine our constant mind-wandering with how our brain's biases have a tendency to overemphasize negative outcomes, and we get a perfect cocktail for misery, which I and many others believe is the root cause for depression and anxiety today. When we naturally emphasize fear and let the mind wander, we get that negative feedback loop that destroys our mental well-being. Being lost in negative thoughts that play on repeat over and over in your head is the reason why we become neurotic. Now, this doesn't apply to all of us since not everyone abuses themselves with negative self-talk constantly, but a lot of us do, and the majority of people do it more than they should. We let that inner critic take control of our thoughts, and we stay angry, sad, or depressed much longer than necessary. Buddha had a name for this inner critic. He called it the monkey mind. If you imagine your thoughts as branches, our inner voice swings from one thought branch to the next, all day, every day, just like a monkey. Like Kahneman said, System 1 constantly creates suggestions for System 2. Impressions, intuitions, intentions, and feelings. Now whether you actually listen to your monkey mind or not, that is, at the end of the day, your choice. I am not saying that it's an easy thing to do, but we can learn a lot from Buddha and the practices that Buddhists have done for thousands of years. Meditation has been shown from a large body of scientific work to be a great way to lower the activity in the default mode network, aka System 1. Meditation helps to give clarity to your moment-to-moment experiences. It also changes the way you pay attention to your experiences, thus giving you the ability to change the degree of being lost in negative thought. This is an amazing skill set that can boost your mental health tremendously, especially if you deal with a high level of neurotism. The technique that has the most scientific evidence behind it as being beneficial is the mindfulness meditation technique, also called vipassana, which is the oldest Buddhist meditation practice and can be translated as insight. There is a lot of material on how to do this practice, including guided meditations on YouTube and apps like Headspace or Waking Up with Some Harris. I suggest you do some research to find something that suits you. Personally, I like to do an open-eyed mindfulness meditation for 10 minutes during the evening, which sometimes almost puts me in a trance-like state. It's pretty awesome. A lot of the value with meditation is recognizing when your System 1 programs are being triggered, like the fight-flight-freeze response. Meditation allows you to become aware of your sensations when they occur, 
which gives you the opportunity to choose consciously how you want to react. You are then better able to recognize how your body reacts to an experience and consciously choose how you wish to act in that situation, rather than letting your body choose. You essentially override System 1 before it has time to make a decision for you. Additionally, using breath work can help a lot with calming yourself down and getting you out of that mental state when the biochemical reactions of your emotions are flooding your body. I recommend checking out the 478 method and other deep breathing techniques that originate from pranayama, the practice of breath control. Meditation and breath work combined are the ultimate tools to both gain awareness and control of your thoughts and emotions.